0: Hello and welcome to Roast Tinted Black and White Television uh, where we review and explore the programmes that flickered across United Kingdom's screens during the golden age here of British television, which is 1956, the series crisis, to 1974, the three-day week. And no finer period of television exists in all broadcast history. And as always, my co-host is David Newell. Hello. And as Dave intimated uh, last time, we are talking about shows with rotating leads. Now, I think that we ought to have some definitions here as uh, all good academic symposia. Yes, we need to get it right from the start. So when we're talking about rotating leads... There's two obvious ones, which we talked about last time, but actually it could be broadened out because, as I'm going to say, you could look at any precinct cop show or bunch of medics. So it's all Westerns, actually. And I would say that what we're talking about is not having somebody like a permanent lead Say, James Arness in Gunsmoke. Yes. Who you couldn't get rid of at all and was always front and centre of the show. And it helps not actually being named after the the lead character. That that is a boon so that you would have ensemble casts
1: which would feature equally billed actors and performers and maybe each episode may focus more significantly on one character or another. Um, Continuing your Western analogy, I suppose Bonanza would be a good point of that. Bonanza um, the rumour why Bonanza worked is apparently demographically it had someone for everyone. Yeah, as did the Waltons. Waltons, but you would also then have ensemble cast where everyone is, is sort of making the same contribution so we've spoken about it before um, the champions there would be episodes sometimes where um Sharon McCready would just be catching up on admin back at nemesis but would contribute uh, and and so one of the characters may may be slightly more focused on. but the idea is that you had a team or you would have an ensemble cast where each episode would would feature one of those characters at at the Forefront and the others would be you know, so I kind of like decorously around them. Um, and I was talking to to someone the other day, I suppose a good example of that, I know it's slightly out of our, our wheelhouse, um, would be Boys from the Black Stuff.
0: Did occur to me, actually, that you've got something, which obviously is a spin-off from the Black Stuff. Mm. Uh, obviously, that's Alan Leesdale, I suppose. GBH would be another one of his. Mm. And usually, actually, one of the core things in the 80s and 90s for BBC shows would be ensemble casts which would focus on each week and then there would be an arc so they would sort of reappear
1: Yeah, um, in, the, in the 70s I remember there was a TV series called Accident, which, which started off with an accident a, a car crash um, a, and there were 10 people kind of peripherally involved in that, and then each episode would feature one of those characters at the forefront. How they they got to to where the accidents uh, occurred, and then what happened to them, sort of right after that. And there would be sometimes very little contact with the other characters during that. They would have their own surrounding
0: world as as such. Yeah, and I think that's probably the focus of it. I mean, we talked about the four just men, which yeah. is based on an Edgar Wallace set of stories and in The Four Just Men, the TV show that was uh, made at Walton Studios. What you have is the Four Just Men signing their piece of paper right at the beginning, being introduced in the voiceover, and then you would suddenly get the splash with Jack Hawkins or Richard Conte or... Vittoria De Seeker and the other guy, okay. <laughs> who I apologise to for not remembering. <laughs> Usually they would be the folk for that story and there would be some moment where, and it's always a he obviously with four just men, has to phone up one of his mates and they do a bit of magical research and come up with the goods surprisingly easily really. <laughs> Mm. but what you get is that kind of one-sided telephone conversation and I'm kind of intrigued because of the production dynamics of the Four Just Men because they did seem to do stuff that was on location even though the back lot would have been in Wharton-on-Thames there does seem to be quite a lot of it and it's not just location footage there seems to be some location stuff in Paris. I'm not so sure about New York to be honest, but uh, certainly you look at the Italian stuff with uh Vittoria de Sica and you sort of think they can't have built that in Walton on Thames <laughs> that'll cost a fortune. Yeah. Uh, so, so, possibly the,
1: the you know, because it's quite an interesting notion of having four reasonably familiar uh, film faces who who would have been hovering on the periphery of doing some TV as well, but four prominent film faces, you've you've got that novelty of being able to to perhaps cast the net further afield uh, because you've got that combination of, wait a minute, we've got Americans in this, and we've got some British guys and we've got an Italian as well. So
0: you're you're looking at quite a wide market to attempt to capture. Yeah, and that, I think I think it did pretty well actually. And they were able to catch up and coming stars. The very last Four Just Men, which was set in Italy, had Alan Bates. And I thought, Who's that girl behind the bar? That's Judy Dench. Formative years. Yeah, about twenty two or something like that plus a couple of other people, and Fenella Fielding. You've
1: also got the the treat as as a viewer, because there would be fewer adverts for forthcoming programmes and fewer TV magazines uh, around at the time, is it would be a lovely treat and surprise to find out who would be the lead character that episode.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, and they were fairly, there's 39 of them, to tell the truth i th- think i've only seen 37. um oh. so the the inciting episode uh, where they all get together i haven't I seen find their big document. <laughs> yes that, that's right it's all to do with their commanding officer it's about 1959 yeah it's only 15 years since the end of the war mm-hmm. and they do mention the war quite a lot they're not shy about that um, when they talk about or other subjects actually but in in France there's there's obviously uh, references to that, in Italy uh, there's references and potentially delicate (laughs) situations given uh, what you're talking about but they don't shy away from things like um, the trouble in Algeria for example Mm -hmm. um, or people who may have been to put it politely collaborators during the war yeah um, but i mean each week they set themselves quite a hard task yeah and the other thing i'm pleasantly surprised about is the quality of the script um, mm. because i mean obviously you have a mystery that needs to be solved they do give because of the actors obviously you can play to their particular strengths with Desica, I mean, he's wonderfully urbane and mm. and charming. Uh, with Jack Hawkins, he's amazingly stolid. <laughs> he brings all his cruel sea knowledge to to the part. The American guy. Go- well, well there's two American guys. The American guy in Paris. Oh, for heaven's sake! Let's get- Dan Daly. <laughs> Dan Daly. <laughs> Dan <laughs> Daly, a song and dance man, who had his own show, Faraday and Co. For a while in the 70s. Uh, and of course, he's blessed with the assistance of Honor Blackman, mm-hmm. uh, who has kind of yet to acquire the Kathy Gale kick ass persona that she was obviously quite capable of at the time. They just didn't give her those sort of scripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got Richard Conte, mainly in New York. I mean, Richard Conte always came across as a very melancholic actor.
1: Yeah. Very, uh, I mean, very good, you know, very powerful. Uh, you know, if you look at like Call Side 777, you know, all the way through to um, The Godfather, you know, always quite a, you know, quite a
0: melancholic presence. Not someone who you would necessarily cast in a comedy.
1: Uh, uh, not necessarily, school, no, I don't, I don't think so. But, you know, he would have that powerful presence where uh, you realise you were, you were going to get something a little extra. Yeah. Uh, you know, you were going to get something a little extra, things like um, a big combo, walk in the sun, stuff like that. He, was, he bought something to it.
0: Yeah, and um, when he was playing good characters, there would be a measure of gravitas and moral purpose and seriousness, um, as in, when um, he's playing this hotshot lawyer in The Four Just Men, he's sort of taking on pro bono work. Uh, and coming in and rescuing people's lives and reputations uh and bringing the guilty to book and as they all are, it's quite interesting the different flavors where Jack Hawkins does seem to spend a lot of time it's very much a male environment, his household his yeah, yeah, whereas the others generally have. Lovely assistants.
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, it's. I suppose one of the interesting things is is that as as a series, as a rotating lead series, and, and this is a feature of some of the others, is they don't have a handler. They no. don't have a handler as with the Rogues. Um, again, with a glittering lineup of male stars, you had a handler in in the form of Gladys Cooper. Um, or, or search or search control, as it was known in the early seventies, again with rotating leads, and you had Burgess Meredith as as their handler, you know, uh, usually barking orders into a microphone uh, to to tell them what to do. Um, but you know, on on smaller scales, I guess you had that in in the persuaders, you know, where you had Lawrence Naismith as the judge who would who would you know set set the whole thing in motion, um, really. But some, some rotating leads didn't have handlers, and all and the, well, the four just men is, is one of them. They're just renegades.
0: Yes, they seem to operate both inside, well, mainly inside the law, but occasionally when the law doesn't measure up, they cut the old corner and then hand the villains over to... The appropriate authorities.
1: Um, <laughs> again one of the things about rotating leads is um wondering where you know where did how do they get their post you know where do they where do you send it to the, the four just men did they have you know they have a mailbox address
0: yeah I mean because they are known. they are a bit like international rescue yes yeah or the Saint yeah and international rescue kind of has rotating leads that mainly focuses on, Jeff Tracy and Scott and Virgil, uh, mm. the other three sons they don't have their own personalities, really. I was watching them yesterday and just thought, now I don't get any sense of they don't even have particularly large eyebrows. It seems to be Scott <laughs> and Virgil um yeah I'm, I'm, I suppose the thing
1: we always have to remember with international rescue is um, you know whether it is the Empire State Building being moved and, and tottering into to an abyss. Um, or something hurtling towards the sun, Thunderbird 1 is always called out, even if it's, oh, we've run out of milk on Tracy Island. We're all quick. We'll pick that parcel up, please, from the post office. Right, we'll we'll, we'll get Thunderbird
0: 1 out. Yeah, and and looking at it, and they haven't yet found a use of Thunderbird 3, which I Mm -hmm. think is their kind of space shuttle and presumably just Mm -hmm. delivers supplies to Thunderbird 5 and... I expect that there will be a job for it. Uh, It just hasn't really happened yet. I mean yesterday there was quite an interesting plot involved with putting exploding bracelets on people and they had to do a job before they could get the key to unlock the bracelet and there was some evil mastermind behind all this who we didn't see, you'd expect it to be the hood, except from behind. He had hair. Like his kind of behavior. Yeah, that's right. Previously, the last time the hood appeared, he appeared to be auditioning for the king and I. Given
1: his, his penchant for those fabulous outfits.
0: That's right, there's this kind of thing with gold epaulets, and you sort <laughs> of thought that is heavily modeled on your brunette. Um But on this occasion, it was uh, some guy only seen from behind in a chair who had hair, so unless it was the hood in oh. a wig. But as his heli-jet got blown up by Lady Penelope, who demonstrated quite a ruthless streak, I would have thought. does have a dark side to her, despite yeah. the pink roller. Nobody being handed over to the appropriate authorities on that occasion. It was just... Yeah. No chance at rehabilitation there. No, just, just a blazing wreck. Yes, it's always good to have a, a hint of villainy and some robots that looked very similar to it Robbie the Robot or whatever it is from uh, Fireball XL5, but gold-painted uh, nice. instead. Yes, yeah, so I, I don't know whether Thunderbirds kind of counts because it's an ensemble team piece mm-hmm. um, and occasionally Lady Penelope gets a lead role. So... With the rogues, it's quite interesting because they're usually up to no good, but they're usually up to no good cheating people who deserve to be cheated. Absolutely. Cheating the cheaters. I like that, as Barry Moore
1: says in one of the intros to the Zoo Gang. Um, the idea of turning the tables on someone and you've, you've got a glittering array of Hollywood stardom to, to help them out because Robert Coote, Gig Young, Charles Boyer, and David Niven again, the American, the British, and the foreigner, uh, to
0: to try and um, lead that international appeal. That's right, and they were able to swap people around, and that's David Niven is in very few of them, really. Oh, God, he's hardly in it at all. You know, it's it's what's
1: known as, um, if you look on IMDb, where it just says credit only. Is, is quite often is, is how it's listed, which means you you get your name and your face pasted over the introductory credits
0: each week, um, but you don't have to do much for all that. And it's a four-star production, and that was his company, um, mm-hmm. at least partly. And I alluded to it in the, our last show, was that in the very last episode of The Rogues, they do manage to get everybody together on screen and there's a fashion show and David Niven is the compare. And basically they've just filmed him separately in front of a curtain when he was available <laughs> and then cut him in. And, and that is it. It looks slightly unnatural. Whether anyone would have spotted that at the time, unless they were in the industry, I don't know. But, um uh and, it's not only the regular. I mean, Larry Hagman turns up. I think. And... Oh right. Okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, you know, these these series where you've you've got big names as as predominantly doing all the heavy lifting um, would be, you know, a, a, a marvelous opportunity for you know young up and comers. I guess you know to say, hey, you know, I've been I've been working with Charles Boyer. Wow. Um, or I've been working with David Niven, but I think he's just standing in front of a curtain. Um, you know, it's that it's that notion of of being able to do that, um, and that's partly one of the joys, I guess. of watching some of these series, as you said, you know, uh, um, where you can sometimes spot um, big names
0: nowadays, um, kind of like having their tryouts before they were famous. Um... Yes. <laughs> Now a th- thought occurs to me, Dave. Yes. The rotating leads concept. What is the difference between that and an anthology series?
1: Right. But well, I guess an anthology series is you used to have um these these series which are very kind of like unimaginatively titled after the, the the sort of lead so like the Dick Powell Theatre or the Dick Powell show or um, the June Allison Show, where you would, it would again, you know, a big name, a big big Hollywoody name, and you just go, wow, it's hey, it's the it's the June Allison Show, it's the Dick Powell Show, and but their roles within that would be would be sometimes significantly different. You would uh, it would be sometimes just introduced by them. Um, they would occasionally be in it. One of the things about um, the, the Dick Powell show, he, he used it as a way of flexing his directorial muscles as well, because that's what I eventually moved into.
0: Mm. Um, and they there would not be recurring characters? Please. No. I,
1: mean, it, I suppose a, a little bit of a rarer example is <clears throat> where you had an ensemble cast but it was a completely different story and set of characters each week, but you were using the same actors, Um, you know, again, kind of like almost like a repertory theater.
0: Yeah. Which is quite a nice idea because it gives people a chance to exercise their chops basically. Yes. Yeah. Um, And you're not having to fall into a cliched habit of your character, which could Mm. happen in a long running series. And one of the things that you've got to remember is, say, for just men, you've got four people, 39 episodes. I mean, really, that's just about nine each or whatever it is. Yeah, because they're
1: only half an hour as well. Yeah, yeah. And and one of the things that you would you would also be doing is, is having the advantage of rotating leads is that you may be able to attract slightly bigger stars or bigger names and because you would be able to fit their their other film and TV work around it because they weren't kind of tied in to, to having to do 30 odd episodes
0: and depending on your uh, resources if you have The luxury of a proper second unit or whatever it is or the Mm -hmm. studio space. You can wheel people in and you can actually double up on the production. So you might have Jack Hawkins filming at one time and then you might have somebody else like Richard Conte for example pretending to be in America but actually in (laughs) Um, Walton-on-Thames. And of course you've got John Schlesinger as the second unit director you know, or location filming I think they uh, they put it. Um, so yes it could be regarded as an efficient way of going about your production. Now as I said before what intrigues me with the <clears throat> kind of cutaways where they're on the phone or even the location filming is were all the scripts written before they went into production because I was looking at Maigret as well which has location filming in Paris and you sort of think did they keep popping over on the ferry and just doing that bit as and when required or did they know that they could just wrap everything guess, up in a week
1: planning you know if you've got you know 20 or 30 you know, odd episodes you might go over and and film them all at the same time. You know, those French location bits and pieces. And that's that's going to be a challenging role, both for the production unit and, and for the actors
0: involved. What episode is this? Who am I saying this to? Usually, when they're in Paris, they're walking up and down those uh, ladder streets. Mm. They might be in front of Sacré-Cœur or something like that, or they're in Montmartre, or they're just strolling into a cafe. And it's... Not always the same cafe, but they look pretty similar. There's a l- Isn't that the same with all Parisian cafes? Well, quite. There's obviously quite a lot of barge work because that featured yes. very yep. heavily in Simonon's uh, because he lived in a barge with his extended menage a trois, or however his domestic arrangements worked as they went up and down uh, the canals of France for uh, a period of time. But you have to plan all that uh, ahead, really. And so, Mm -hmm. once again, I'm wondering how much notice they gave people. Presumably the writers had to work out from the novel what would be required for external scenes. I don't think it was all sync sound. Um, There's probably actually, in fact, very little sync sound to be honest, which would mean that you've got a lighter crew. But Unlike a lot of shows now where you're already in production and people are given six weeks to produce a script which then goes into production in another six weeks, you don't necessarily have the chance to work out when you're going to do that stroll down to the cafe or into the bar or whatever it is, unless they just did generic ones. But it seems to me that in certainly in May Gray, they probably didn't um, there's a lot of dodging around corners and stuff like that which um, it you could always say that would be generic but it didn't strike me as being quite so much uh, in the stories and the same again with The Four Just Men a lot of stuff in Italy which was either in Naples or Rome for the most part and you sort of think oh right yeah that. Actually, looks like it's Naples or Rome. really <laughs> does look like a location, um, and particularly if you're following someone through the streets, then you have to know that that's in the script. He mm. can't just sort of do that off the cuff, and it's a possibility that Vittorio De Sica could lay his hands on a crew.
1: Um, I mean, one one of the other things uh, uh, as well and maybe perhaps not so much with with four just men I don't know maybe um is is the public as to whether they you know prefer one lead or have a, a, a particular favored lead over over another and again that has like an impact on on the balance of the series So if you look at you mentioned before about Western series, you know, if you look at the the Western series Maverick, which originally started off with with James Garner and and Jack Kelly as as sometimes rotating leads, sometimes working together, and they introduced their cousin Beauregard, um, our very own Roger Moore, uh, and the idea then that is that they had like a third lead to have their own you know storylines or their own their own episodes, and whether that was. You know, in response to viewer feedback, you know that idea of oh, well, they're 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 more preferred.
0: Probably, it's to do with workload, basically. You know,
1: it's it's what else? You know, if James Garner, not to be confused with the Everton footballer of the same name, <laughs> currently, I, I love Everton at the moment because they've also got Tarkovsky playing for them, um, it, which
0: I would love to see.
1: Like Andre Tarkovsky
0: playing football. That would be um, a very long and slightly <laughs> sinister. <laughs> yes. Game. Uh, but yeah, with that's with with James
1: Garner, Jack Kelly, and, and Roger Moore. The fact that oh, wait a minute, you know James Garner needs a little bit of time off to to go and make I don't know Mister Budwing or whatever. And and the idea is well, we we know we've got. Two people who can can handle the chores, you know, while they're while they're away, and viewers wouldn't feel as if they'd been shortchanged
0: a little bit. Yes, I mean, I think you you also notice a series of about, say, fifteen odd years ago called Life, starring Damian Lewis. There was only about thirty episodes. It got interrupted mm-hmm. by one of the last great strikes, uh, which was uh, the same as Pushing Daisies uh, did. And they brought in a new hard-nosed cop boss who featured much more, partly, because Damien Lewis was in every scene pretty much uh, Mm. otherwise. And so just the exhaustion of filming would mean that uh, he just needed some help, basically. So, yes, there's those technical and... Personnel considerations, I would say. So, you talked about Maverick. Yeah.
1: I've got some others on my list. As okay. Well. If only for its fab theme tune and the fact that it's got like the lovely Susan St. James in fab 60s gear, is um, the name of the game. Remind me about that. Right. The name of the game was uh, based around a huge public uh, or publishing industry, which had sort of like an investigatory magazine journalism going on and your rotating leads there would be gene barry uh robert stack and, and anthony franciosa so again they would bring something new and different again appealing perhaps to different groups different demographics um like i said fab um opening theme tune and credit sequence um, well by That said Dave Grusin's music. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have a handler as such. There wasn't a venerable American lady who who ran the magazine. Like in the great series, Berlin Desk wasn't a character like that.
0: With her catchphrase, uh, "May I remind you?"
1: <laughs> yes, my yeah, may I remind you? Um, but the the other linking one who was using each one was Susan St. James, and and she was she was sort of like admin, um, and it was that which sort of propelled her breakout role then into into McMillan and Wife. But the the name of the game, because it was journalism in the very broadest sense that there still was a bit of rough house every once in a while, but it was was just kind of, just like a very tail end of the 60s, early
0: 70s, glossy series. There was a whole thing about the amount of on-screen violence because the American version of Mary Whitehouse, that particular group were very opposed to the amount of punch-ups there were. One of the worst offenders, according to them, was uh, Wild Wild West. All oh, right, okay. And eventually, I think that got cancelled on the basis of the number of punch ups that they had, and it was kind of sacrificed. But it, there again, I mean, it was a fantasy western essentially, and it was moving towards the the tail end of westerns. Once again, on the western theme, I don't know if this is on your list. The Virginian, yes.
1: Again, the Virginian, uh, based upon a best-selling book. the the notion being in the book, you never find out the Virginian's name. They're just referred to as the Virginian. Again, to have a, a not necessarily a rotating cast, but an ensemble cast, where there would be a a focus of of a particular um, performer. And Even though James Drury was was meant to be there at the, the the big ticket item, the big draw, um, as as the TV series wore on, it was um Doug McClure as Trampus who who you know became the popular and the, the focal point for it. And even when it got remangled and reimagined as as the men from Shiloh in in the early seventies, uh, with with Stuart Granger and an Erio Monocumbe theme song, it still had that you know that opportunity to have that ensemble aspect where where someone would be at the um, you know at the forefront at the focal point.
0: Yeah, as a regular uh, and occasionally James Drury would get an episode in which. As the lead, he starred. But for the most part, it was people like Doug McClure. And then there was Stuart Granger. Well, there was Lee J Cobb at one point. Lee
1: J Cobb was, was kind of like the wise old man to begin with. And then as you as you go down, you get people like Clue Gulliger. who was, was, was kind of also being able to help out, I suppose, on, on
0: episodes. Yeah, I mean, he actually... had because he played a sheriff, didn't
1: he? Mm.
0: Um, and so, uh, as the lawman, he was... I quite liked him as a screen presence, I must admit. Mm. Um, but, yes, they would take the heavy lifting for different episodes.
1: Right, who else is on your list, Dave? All right. OK, I did mention it earlier, um, which, again, was one of my, my faves, because at, at the time, it seems so technologically advanced. It started as a pilot um, called Probe, who were Mrs, called Probe, and it originally featured Hugh O'Brien. He was the only kind of like operative, and Burgess Meredith and others were, were his handler, and he was like a, a, a super spy agent, and in the opening pilot, there's John and was Elka Summer, amongst, amongst others. Um, but when it became a TV series, they had it with three rotating leads. And it's Hugh O'Brien, Doug McClure, everyone's favourite Virginian character, and hot off the back of um, the name of the game, Anthony Franciosa, uh, again. And you you had, which we've spoken about before, that lovely treat of, at the beginning of each episode, little tiny clips which seemed to indicate all the excitement that was to come. Um, and again, because it was like early 70s, Uh, You had no idea who was going to be the lead, you know that that week. And again, I I mean, I can't recall whether there ever was, you know, a crossover episode or a like they did with Doctor Who, you know, the five Doctors type of episode.
0: Now, if I remember rightly, because I think I remember a Doug McClure episode, did he have basically a webcam in a ring? He did. They used to.
1: One of the ways they used to do is they used to have like a little little bit of a medallion. Which had like a microphone and, uh, and and camera hidden in it. So it always amazed me that when you saw the footage of that, that with Burgess Meredith and the tech crew, it wasn't just um, filming someone's tie that they were speaking to and kind white of like chestnut. You were still able to see their faces. The big you know technology advancement is there was all kinds of you know gadgets and, and gizmos um, to allow them to to take on whoever they were taking on.
0: Gadgets, technology, I suppose that's coming out of, well, Man from Uncle, uh, uh, James Bond, um, various other things. And then, you know, you get the six million dollar man, etc. So there's there's quite a lot of heavy tech there. On the British side, uh, I don't know whether you thought of this, is Zero One. We have mentioned this before. Yes, we have. Yeah. 1962, Zero One. Is derived from the call sign of airline security. Now the guy who ran airline security was based on a real character uh, but they changed his name to Alan Garnet and it was Nigel Patrick. Oh right, okay. But they had a lot of human interest stories and they did have a man, I think it was mainly a man, in every port or airport uh, and so he would Get guest characters. Now, I'm not entirely sure whether Nigel Patrick had to turn up um, and be ably <laughs> assisted, partly because I think Zero One isn't necessarily available on all good streaming services. Um, so I couldn't check this out. Um, so, uh, t- TV Heaven, Television Heaven, um, says the series concentrated on the human interest angle, uh, avoiding air crashes to focus on the security of uh, passengers and cargo, suspense, action, and characterization with a gentle overtone of humor thrown in.
1: That really sounds like the doctoring for all TV programs, what all TV programs should be like. uh,
0: Let's see. The international flavor was heightened by Garnet having an American assistant, Jimmy Delaney, US actor Bill Smith, and an Indian secretary, Mayer, who was, in fact, Polish-born actress Katia Douglas, who'd lived in India for 15 years. Does that give her the opportunity to really exercise the accent? I don't know. They were Did different times. Self-identify?
1: I don't know.
0: Yeah, yeah. That was one potential one I talked about in American series. It's almost any precinct cop show. Uh, so <laughs>
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Um, the Naked City, and each episode carefully crafted... It sounds like an advert, doesn't it? To be (laughs) an insightful look into the lives of real human beings, reflected most memorably in the continued use of the now famous tagline originally written for the feature film, there are eight million stories in the naked city, this has been one of them. So you had the regular characters themselves, Senior Detective Lieutenant Dan Muldoon. Of Irish descent, I'm hazarding a guess here. All New York cops are of Irish descent, aren't they? No matter what their background. The actor was called John McIntyre. The eager uh, young neophyte, Detective Jim Halloran, James Franciscus, oh, right. and um, the crumpled, seen it all before, Officer Frank Accaro, Harry Belliver. They displayed compassion tempered with toughness, becoming emotionally involved in the cases they investigated. Very unprofessional. Uh, yeah it
1: wouldn't happen nowadays
0: yeah th- that is pretty much like all other cop shows
1: <laughs> there's stuff like homicide um you know life in the streets hill street blues you know that idea of having an ensemble cast but having an ensemble cast that has been created in such a way and um, the way it's written as a viewer you don't necessarily feel shortchanged if one particular character one week, seems to
0: be having more screen time. I guess that's the way ensembles work. One series which has been on Talking Pictures TV, uh, The Detectives, uh, originally. Oh, from
1: right, yeah. a Taylor, yeah.
0: Uh, a commercial half hour. Um, I think it then got later bumped up to a uh, commercial hour. And actually, more isn't always better. I thought that the half hour stories were fairly tight and you didn't have the soapy elements that they felt obliged to introduce. By expanding it, it's not always the case. I mean, for example, Danger Man went up from half an hour to an hour and um, <laughs> was all the better for it. To be honest, Danger Man obviously not a rotating lead in um, the series. <laughs> um, yeah, what what other people have you got? Again, it's a little bit outside
1: our timeline, but we, we've learned that that's that's a very fluid aspect. Is sometimes you get it where where series are. Very successful, but there are circumstances beyond their control. And if you look, you know, it's very easy to, to to forget this. What a massive hit at the time the equaliser was with Edward Woodward. He was able to make that move over to the States. He was able to do a series. You know, lots of on-trend stuff there. You had a Stuart Copeland theme piece. Um, lots of sort of roughhouse action. But um, unfortunately, whilst he was being made, you know, he he was taken quite seriously ill. I think it was a um, heart condition. But the public still wanted to to see it. So the appetite did, was there. They bought in people who you know be described as as mates of um, what's his name, McCall, um, Robert McCall, who were able to to perhaps you know investigate a little themselves. So so that was like Robert Lansing, kind of helped out for for a series of episodes and you know, thankfully Edward Woodward was able to return to the fold.
0: Yeah, so I mean that's it's quite handy. Again, out of our time frame, but you have the problem in a show like Taggart, for example. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where the lead actor dies and you've got to carry the series on, but it's still called Taggart. You have somebody brought in who's kind of very similar, but he's not called Taggart. I think it's Alex Norton, didn't they? They brought yeah. in and John Mitchie and
1: uh, uh is it Blythe Duff? So yeah. they were still able to to use some of the surrounding cast, but they they found themselves more at the forefront of the episode.
0: You know, the original Taggart, his wife was in a wheelchair. There was an interesting dynamic there. Um <clears throat> Actually, in fact, rather like May Gray basically, the, the domestic side also featured. So you got some sense of that there was some personality behind the gruff detective.
1: Yeah, what, one of my favourite scenes in a Taggart episode when Mark McManus was was in there as Taggart, his wife suffers a medical emergency. She goes into a coma uh, and he, he goes to the hospital and uh, sits at her bedside, holding her hand and talking to her very gently and very lovingly, because he's been told that that maybe those those sorts of conversations will will get through and 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 break through the coma barrier and 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 see her revived. It's a very different scene for him. And it, like you said, it's a different domestic side, and uh, there's there's no response, and you know he he steps out of of a hospital room, and two of his colleagues are there to report the progress of a case, and it's not what he wants to hear. And he just goes into this absolutely raging tirade of their incompetence, and it's that that gets through and his wife does wake up. Um, I just thought it was so beautifully done, the idea of the fact that that's that she's going to respond more to that because that's what she's probably used to listening to.
0: Yes, I mean, there's as I say, it's not our period, uh, but there's a lot to be said about Taggart, particularly the three-episode ones, which allowed plenty of other time to explore other characters and other, other subplots. Eventually, it got cut down to, I think, two hours, either in one lot or and, and then into single-hour commercial-hour television, and it suffered from that, I think which is a shame because the uh, the longer versions were quite intriguing. And and Glasgow, of course, is the most American-type city in the United Kingdom. It it feels like somewhere on the east coast of the United States. But, yes, I suppose you could say that Taggart eventually kind of became a rotating Leeds.
1: Again, you know, you have kind of like TV, you know, one-off episodes of TV series, again, sometimes hampered by. You know, illness or, or nasty falls where the lead actor um, was indisposed, and they would have to find a way of of shooting around it. And you know, have perhaps at the beginning for an opening scene, and perhaps at the end for a for a closing scene. But the supporting cast having to do the the investigating or the sleuthing.
0: Are we talking about Randall and Hopkirk and that episode? <laughs> Jeff Randall is in the hospital, and both Marty and Marty's wife. That turn up and tell basically the same story <laughs> um yeah the the i think they did
1: it with with the the robert wagner series it takes a thief um mm. uh, because they they used to have um fred astaire in that you know for a handful of episodes yeah. it's just like oh well, wait a minute let's bob's feeling a bit poorly
0: we'll we'll ask the supporting cast to bolster hey we've got fred astaire so that's all right so the rotating leads thing i mean the most obvious ones for just men the rogues almost any cop show or western um, <laughs> that, that doesn't doesn't carry a, the lead character's name but there are other shows on the bbc which went to two series and take three girls
1: Come down to London town, watch the people there rushing round and round with no time to spare. Someone try to run a living if you can. If you're strong, can go wrong. All right, yes, yeah, again, you know, if you've got very personable leads and if you've got uh, something which is going to appeal. Perhaps to to different demographics, then
0: it's it's going to have a broader audience. For those who don't know it, I think it was uh, first shown in 1969. Um, the series was created by Gerald Savory. Um, it was about three single girls sharing a London flat between the end of the s- swinging '60s and the start of the glam '70s. W- wasn't a great transition, if I remember right. <laughs> Um, they were posh cello playing Deb Victoria Edgecombe, who was played by Lisa Goddard, failed actress Kate Susan Jameson, and Cockney art student Avril Angela Down. Each week, the story concentrated on the ups and downs of one girl in particular. Episode titles would sometimes reflect this. The first one was titled "Kate, Stop Acting." <laughs> Surely that's, that. you know, if you're a director of that episode, that's entirely the opposite of what you should be saying. Quite, yes. Episode three was Requiem for a Cello in SW3. It gave the series, according to, according to TV Heaven, something of an anthology feel. It was successful enough to return for a second series that only Victoria remained. Um, one had got married, the other one got a job in Paris, And she is now joined by new flatmates, Jenny, Carolyn Seymour, who is a journalist, and American psychology graduate, Lulee, played by Barra Grant. There's a whole load of guest stars. Oh, Um, my goodness. Stephanie Cole, Peter Bowles, Sally Thomsett, Anthony Valentine, Morris Denham. Yeah, so a few Avengers points available. You know, one of the other things,
1: and and this is
0: maybe just a, a caprice
1: of the audience's, is where a series does attempt to have a ensemble feel, or you know, equally distributed lines or or situations, but a character may may find itself more popular than another. Spoke, you know, like Rock Follies. Yeah, yeah. Where uh, um, perhaps one is more popular than um, another, or um, again, a little bit later, where you know. If we remember the TV series Moonlighting, Sybil Shepherd was top build in that. You know, Bruce Willis was just the second banana. That's
0: right. And, you know, led to greater things, mm. uh, I would say. Another show that I thought about, um, for remembering it, uh, debuted BBC Two, on Sunday, 23rd of April 1972, The Lotus Eaters. You know what? I'm going to amaze you now,
1: Guy, um, and baffle those listeners. Because um, I, I do have to keep reminding myself this isn't a visual show. I was in a charity shop yesterday, and um, I managed to pick up this. Oh, nice. Who this Pays set. the Ferryman? Yes, the box set. Who Pays the Ferryman? Um, from the same writer as The Lotus Eaters, because it tells me on the back, Michael J. Bird, and then it's got in brackets, in italics, the lotus eater so i have all 400 minutes of it and 25 pence i've checked there are discs inside
0: oh Um, that's good
1: i mean it's because if you were going to order
0: it from amazon you'd probably order a postcard of it uh, in the belief (laughs) that you'd actually ordered the real thing um it apparently is one of those Uh, traps that people can fall into. They think they've ordered the real product and actually it's just a photograph of it. Uh, So, yes,
1: I have um, the episodes to look forward to. I've got Return to Yesterday, Some Talk of Alexander, Long Shadow, A Dead Man to Carry My Cross, Receive the Light, The Well, A River to Cross, and The Daughters of Themis. There we go.
0: All right. That sounds like it might be a sort of more... Is that Jack Headley I saw in the? It country? is, yeah, Jack Headley. Um, it's kind of along the lines of the Aphrodite Inheritance, where it's it's basically a, a thriller mystery that somebody mm-hmm. is is trying to solve. Where well, the first series of the Lotus Eaters, you had a bunch of expats um, stuck on a sun-kissed island. Um, <laughs> fortunately, not in a on a set that was built at great cost and. Overran. <laughs> yes, Eldorado, I'm talking about you. Concerned a group of British expatriates living on Crete, and it ran for two series. The first comprised of nine powerful, often tragic, dramas, each telling the story of a different member of the cast. Most characters appeared in more than one episode, uh, and they were all skillfully woven into this subplot about the faltering marriage of the characters played by Ian Hendry and Wanda Ventham, who I think are going to appear in The Gold Robbers um shortly. Oh, right, hey, thank you. Um, which obviously predates the The second series was basically, there was an espionage thing, and that was, um, it, it wasn't really kind of the same sort of series. But it started off, all those kind of fantastic sun-kissed mystery things were... Um, People could go on location and all around the Eastern Mediterranean, and do wonders for tourism there.
1: Yeah, so, it did it seems that may, maybe Michael J. Bird just liked going to the to the Adriatic,
0: maybe. Yeah, or the Dodecanese or Cyprus or something like that. Yeah. You know, toiling away in um, in the hot Mediterranean sun, drinking ouzo, claiming it against tax. <laughs> Tough job. Yes. But uh he did it manfully. Have you got any others on your list Dave? Uh I can't think I mean I suppose
1: what, what will happen now is later on this evening I will have those those Eureka moments uh when you do think oh, again yeah, wasn't there a series that did this or wasn't there a series that that did that did that where you know you you not necessarily rotating leads but almost like a yeah. Um, a kind of like anthology aspect.
0: The escalier, I think the French call it. Yes, yes, the comment for the stairs. Um, but there is one epic series from 1967, Trumpton. Uh, yes, again, um,
1: kind of like rotating leads, you no know, focal point you know, certain expectations, you know, for for the, is um, it the army truck?
0: Yeah, it's a fire brigade. And I think it starts off either with the clock or the roll call. Um, and particularly when they turn up to solve something and it ends with the fire brigade band playing. And as TV Heaven says, every show tells the story of one of the townsfolk. So it's not 8 million people in Trumpton, but of this course, has been
1: one of their stories.
0: Yeah, that's right. So there's Trumptonshire, um, Camberwick Green. Chigley. Chigley, yes. And I can't remember whether Chigley was bigger or smaller than Trumpton.
1: <laughs> I, I believe the term is, it, it
0: blended into an urban
1: conurbation.
0: That, that's right. It's probably, um, Camberwick Green is probably a new town now. <laughs> Yes, that was uh, one that it's worth revisiting, I think. I think that kind of wraps up our exploration of uh, shows with uh, either intentionally rotating leads Mm. or rotating leads which have been forced upon it by circumstances. A lot of mileage, a lot of mileage out there. Right. Um, Have you got any other
1: business day? Uh, No, I think think that may be um, about it. I'll go in and rub my, my slightly unshaven chin and have a think about um,
0: our next topic. Right. Uh, this has been Rose Tinted Black and White Television. I've been Guy Morgan and my co-host has been David Newell. Um, Thank you. And we will be back again to discuss whatever Dave comes up with. <laughs> <laughs> could be me. Could be him. Guy could do it as well. Yeah, I'll have a think about it. Yes, so thank you very much for listening and look out for us next time. Pew, pew, Barney McGrew, Cuthbert, Dibble, Grub.